0: Welcome to City Talks by Ford. Conversations with experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. Welcome back to City Talks by Ford conversations with the experts working through the needs and challenges cities face today, and how they're helping create safer, more accessible, and more sustainable mobility options for millions. I'm your host, Andrew Winston, sustainability advisor, writer, and author of Net Positive. Today we take a look at sustainability and mobility. Joining me for the discussion is independent climate, technology, and transportation advisor, Andrew Salzberg. Andrew's a lecturer at MIT and advises for Populist Climate View Open North and Transit App. Today, we get into a fascinating conversation about sustainability and decarbonization initiatives. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have a really interesting title and and job description. It seems like you've worked with and for a lot of companies, all in the overlap of technology, transportation, and then kind of climate overarching. So... What does that all mean combined, and how did you get into this? Where did you come from?
1: Yeah, well, I I came from where I am right now, which is back in Montreal, Quebec. And I had a Dutch dad, and anybody who follows transportation probably spends a decent amount of time hearing about how great the Dutch are in terms of biking and getting around sustainably. So I feel like both from where I grew up and the fact that my dad spent a lot of time hauling me around on a bike, I think that got me started pretty early on the topic of, you know, how cities work and, and how important it is to think about how we get around them for How they deliver for citizens. So I kind of had that in the background for a long time, but then kind of became more interested in transportation, how it works, and the climate thing. You know, that really became prominent for me, probably most when I was in college, which was sort of in the early 2000s. And for those who are old enough to remember, there was sort of the Al Gore movie that came out of those times. It was kind of an earlier period of kind of climate motivation in North America that I think is now coming back around. So that kind of combined with the transport interest pretty early on. And I've kind of been following that thread off and on since then.
0: Yeah, I was going to say when you said you're in Montreal on a bike, well, that sounds cold. And then I remember one of the coldest days I spent in Europe was in Amsterdam watching everybody still bike. Like they had no qualms about it didn't matter how cold it was. They were they were biking around. And it's nice. You, re, you refer to the, uh, the Al Gore years when you were young. That was kind of my not mid-career, but early career, kind of making the change into sustainability in that year, 06, 07, it made a big difference, right? It became a big topic in companies. And you started to see companies like Ford and others really coming forward with, what are we going to do about this? You know, and Bill Ford actually was one of the earliest to, to talk about it, even before I think the whole company and sector was ready. So it was kind of a personal connection to this. And climate comes up, obviously, as a big deal. What, what do you think? I mean, we're going to talk mostly about mobility in cities. What's the state of sustainability for mobility? Like, how would you define it? What's a sustainable mobility plan for a city look like?
1: Yeah. Well, just to give the context, I mean, we're we're in North America. I like to include Canada in that context because these are the countries that are, depending how you count, probably the single worst countries in terms of emissions per capita.
0: Except for the Middle Eastern, I think, per, per capita. But yeah, at scale, oh, well, we're definitely. We're number one. U.S. is number one.
1: Especially if you look back over, you know, historical contributions, which is what really matters and what's in the atmosphere right now. And in those places, in the U.S. in particular, in the world that I spend a lot of time in, you know, you get tired of hearing that transportation is the number one source of emissions, but it's worth repeating. And in that slice, urban transportation and the kind of cars and trucks we use is the number one piece of the number one piece in maybe the number one country in terms of responsibility for climate change. So I would say for, we're, we're starting from a bad spot in terms of how bad we're doing on this topic today.
0: Or it's a huge opportunity, right? I mean, I guess that's one way of looking. If we're at the bottom, there's only going up. That's right, <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. Starting at the bottom.
0: So state of it for now is not good in, in our cities, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The state is not good. And I think, you know, one of, we're going to talk about maybe the terms we use to describe things. I think sustainable has been a really important term we've used in a bunch of places. I've been starting to say the words decarbonization a little bit more, which is really very explicit and kind of narrower. Basically, how do we stop using fossil fuels to move people around. That's only one piece, I think, of a broader context of sustainability. But when I think about what we have to do on the climate front, particularly in North America, where we're lagging pretty badly in other parts of the world, to me, that's that's what I think about when I think about sustainability is really focused on this question of decarbonizing the energy that powers the transportation system. And there's a lot of ways we go about that. Obviously, if you're walking, you're not using any energy, or at least not from external sources. So there's a lot of words to do there. But I think for me, sustainability in this context is really about decarbonization.
0: No, it's, a, it's a techie word, but I think it's you're right. It's the right one. I mean, there's so much discussion about you know net zero goals for companies, for cities. My new book is net positive, and but all that you know is in some sense net zero means you're going to probably plant some trees somewhere. You're going to take care of your emissions elsewhere. But in the end, if we get to zero globally by 2050, it means we've decarbonized, right? Everything's at zero. There's nowhere to offset, right? You, you have to get to zero. So I think it's the, it's the right title. I think, you know, we'll probably see more people with that kind of title. You know, how can we dramatically improve what is happening in cities? Obviously, there's different kinds of cities and how fast they're going and how slow, but if you're looking at North America and we're kind of behind. What would you first look at?
1: There's obviously a few buckets that people can use to get emissions down from transportation in any given city. I mean, clearly, the most obvious one we already have that doesn't take any new technology is if you walk or you cycle or you take transit, you're using a lot less energy per mile traveled than you would be. If you were driving or doing something else. That's obviously an important part. And I'm a believer in that. You know, I think I said up top, my dad's a big bike rider and I grew up in Montreal, which is one of the best transit cities in North America. So I'm a big fan of those things. But I also think if you look at the North American context, particularly the US context, most people travel by car all the time. The national level statistics are pretty sobering in terms of things that are not car. So if you take transit nationally, you know, it's between maybe two and three percent pre-COVID in the US, meaning that 80 plus percent of the time for any kind of trip, whether it's commuting or getting to the grocery store, people are driving their car. And that's a pretty dramatic number. And that's where the bulk of our transportation emissions come from in cities. So basically, you either want to get people to use their car less, maybe not own one at all, which hopefully can get you a little bit towards the end of the problem. But I think by and large, a lot of the answer in North America in particular is going to be changing the technology of driving. And obviously, that's why there's so much focus on electrification. We can talk about where that may be too much of the focus or not. But by and large, I think most of the answer on the timeframes we're talking about is going to lie in vehicle technology. And even in that bucket, there's lots of changes between e-bike or an e-hummer are very different electric vehicles. So it's not all one thing.
0: Well, I mean, I guess the only bright spot in how much we drive in in this continent is that almost all the trips are short, or short-ish, right? Or short enough for an electric vehicle to be plenty, even a plug-in with a 30, 40-mile range is, covers almost every trip. But we'll, we'll need some infrastructure for it to be the dominant form, right? We're going to have to build. Looking at your bio, you've, you've worked with and advised a number of interesting companies, and I'll kind of touch on them as we go through different topics. So you talk about getting more people walking or taking public transit. Tell us a little bit about the Transit app and kind of where is it where is it being used and helpful.
1: Yeah. So it's biggest in North America. So based in Montreal, but you know biggest markets are in the U.S. And basically, it's your Google Maps equivalent for Transit. So if you are a non-car user, you want to take public transportation, it's the largest app of that purpose. It's one of the biggest navigation apps full stop in North America. And you can find everything from your local bus to your on-demand transit service to your bike share. And in a lot of places you can not just find them, but you can also pay for a ticket. That's one of the big hurdles. If you go from place to place, it's very easy to pay for an Uber ride in any city. You don't have to think of something new, but if you've ever traveled somewhere and tried to pay for a transit ticket, you know, that can sometimes be a big hurdle. So transit is useful for both finding a ride, paying for it, et cetera. And for me, the goal is, how do you give the advantage of all the digital mobility, new technology, seamless things on your smartphone? How do you make sure all of that stuff is benefiting public transportation agencies just as much as it's benefiting ride RideHill, Micromobility, some of the newer stuff that's coming down the road?
0: So you're saying you pick up the app, you say, I got to go from here to here. And it gives you all the various options and says, hey, did you know there's a bike share in this city that you're visiting? Right. So it tells you where to go. Is it programmed to try to go for the lowest carbon? Is that part of it or is it more of a convenience? What's the algorithm look like?
1: Yeah, it's not it's not designed for that explicitly in the sense that it tries to find you the most convenient ride. It'll give you things like price and and travel time. But obviously, by virtue of the fact that it is primarily public transportation with a little bit of things like bike share sprinkled in and no car directions like the users of that app and people who are planning their trip there are already essentially choosing the low carbon mode. So, the goal is to make all that stuff as convenient or ideally more convenient than your car. So, the, the background focus, anybody who's choosing to put their technology energy into public transit, I think has a climate perspective just by default.
0: Yeah. It would be good, I think, before we dig into some of the specifics. You've you've got a course you teach at MIT or you created on decarbonizing urban mobility. What's the curricula there. What are you focusing on? And who, I'm just curious, who's ta- like who takes that?
1: Yeah, we did it for the first time this fall, and it was a good mix of you know everything from engineering students to public policy, urban planning, some undergrads. So that was kind of the goal, actually. You know, because I think one of the things we're trying to address is a little bit of the kind of fracturing of this conversation around sustainable urban mobility, decarbonizing urban mobility. I think sometimes you have people who are big believers in Tesla's ability to save us from our own emissions or, you know, Ford's going to save the world or, you know, cars are the worst thing ever and we should never talk about them in this context. I think all those perspectives are definitely out there, certainly uh, when it comes to the Twitter conversation on these topics. So I think part of the goal of the course was to say, okay, let's not presuppose what the solution is, but let's take a specific city, we use Boston, that's just where the course was being taught, and tried to get as grounded in numbers as we could. It was nice to be at MIT. I think there's sort of a general acceptance of math being an important part of the solution there. And so we had some simple spreadsheet models of Boston, and try to get people to engage with the numbers and say, okay, if I was able to convert all of the short trips in Boston to biking, you know, how far down the path of a zero emission system would I get? And some of the times when you do that, you find some sobering results. You know, you mentioned earlier a stat that a lot of people quote, that the majority of trips are less than three miles, which is true. But unfortunately, from an energy perspective, if someone takes a 30-mile trip, which is not that uncommon in U.S. cities, it has 10 times more energy consumption than a three-mile trip. So there really is a lot of challenges for some of those longer trips. And if you look at the Boston metro area, which includes you know, parts of New Hampshire and Rhode Island... You get a lot of very long distance travel and suburban trips. So the point was to kind of ground people in the numbers, ask them to propose their own solutions, you know, dive deep on everything from land use changes to biking to electric vehicles to transit and sort of see how those pieces might fit together without starting from a perspective that I or my co-instructor Jinwa Zhao, who's at MIT, knew the answer. You know, I think we don't. Not many cities have even really gotten that far down the path of doing this. So we can't come and say it's not like teaching Mechanics 1 or something where we sort of know the answers. We don't really know what we're supposed to be doing at the end.
0: Boston seems like a pretty good test ground. I lived there for a few years and they've got a pretty good hybrid system. I mean, the T is, I guess you call it a subway, but a lot of it's above ground once you get out of the, the city. And it gets you to a lot of places or it gets to all the major universities there into town, right by where I used to work. And there's a lot of walking. You know, I lived walkable to downtown. So it seems like a good mix. I mean, what have you discovered kind of as the right, set of solutions for a city like that.
1: Yeah, one of the the challenges is that Boston means different things, right? The city of Boston, I think, has half a million people. And I think a lot of what you're talking about, the travel breakdown there has a, a good percentage of people traveling by transit and less by car. But if you think about the Boston metro area, which has many millions of people and something like 100 different cities are in there, there's a huge share of people who are commuting by car who probably don't have great ways to stop doing that in the short term. And not just commuting, but getting to and from groceries and social outings and all kinds of things. So I think the point was to say, well, what are the solutions that are on the table? Can you radically increase cycling? And if so, how plausible is it that people who are taking extremely long trips in all seasons are going to convert to those modes? Where can those make the most sense? Yeah, I think like everywhere. And if you look at there, are been, there have been plans published for Boston that tried to solve this problem sponsored by the city and academics and all of them, not surprisingly have kind of a mix of shift people out of cars electrify the cars and make the power renewable. Now, I think it's actually kind of, it's getting easier to say what we have to do, which is ideally use less cars, make them all electric and power the electric grid renewably. So it's not that hard to sort of say what you have to do. I think how you actually do those things and there's different strategies under those different buckets is where it gets complicated. So I think that's kind of what we're trying to dive a little bit into, you know, how many cars would it take? What are the benefits of transit? How much transit could you take and beef up? And obviously at the current moment, we're talking about, is during COVID. And so, you know, transit ridership is really not where it was pre-COVID. A lot of people working from home. So there's a lot of things happening now we haven't seen before, and no one really knows how durable those changes are going to be.
0: And how much it'll go back. I mean, as you said before, though, you know, even if you can move the grid as fast as you can to renewables, there's still just a bigger system and bigger energy draw to have a 30-mile trip even plugged in, right? It still means you got more batteries, more cars, and the grid isn't entirely green yet. It will take a while. So there's still kind of this need to shorten things, right? And to bring... Services and kind of combined living, right? So you live closer to work if you can. So, I mean, this is a complicated set of issues. And we've in this series, we've talked to a number of people working in departments of transportation in DC, LA, a few different cities. I mean, how do you think about how these cities should be kind of budgeting or thinking about spending towards sustainable mobility? I mean, I'm sure, like all government budgets, you get the reps from different parts of the town or the state are pushing for whatever's going to help their neighborhood. But how do you think about the budgets kind of across a whole city?
1: I mean, I think the the hope is for a DOT, and I think the truth is that a lot of these sustainable solutions should be cheaper than their alternative, right? I mean, I think there's some basic things I would recommend. I think it's hard to call yourself a climate city. If you still have mandated parking minimums almost anywhere in your city, but certainly in places that are adjacent to transit or other alternatives. So, you know, I think to me, one of the very clear things, and it's not always in the DOT's mandate, but if we're forcing developers to put parking spaces into buildings, those buildings have lifespans of, you know, hopefully at least 30 years and it's 2022. So that's already past our 2050 goals right now. So if you're thinking about some of those changes you can make, some of the stuff should be cheaper, right? Bike parking is way cheaper than car parking. And if we've seen during COVID, reallocation of street space is something that local DOTs have a lot of control over and can move quickly on. So I think there are some things there to start shifting the balance away from an over-focus on cars and trying to say, well, how do we enable alternatives? At the very least, we shouldn't be forcing people to drive. And I think of parking minimums as one way in which we start to do that. Obviously, I think this may not be directly a DOT, but in terms of local government, you mentioned land use. That was obviously one of the big topics we had in our course. Land use is very powerful, but very slow. But a lot of zoning codes in a lot of cities are very hostile to densification of cities in terms of allowing even sort of modest density like duplexes and triplexes in places that are pretty transit friendly. So I think at the very least, you talked about budget, but to me, there's some things we do regulation wise that make it hard to move to something more sustainable that won't cost us money. They might save money. So I think bike lanes are not expensive. They're politically difficult. Changing parking minimums is not expensive, but it is politically difficult. So in some places, the capital that's most scarce is not so much money, but political will to make some of these changes.
0: So just to clarify the parking minimums, you're saying like when building, there's regulations on how many parking spots per person living there that you have to have. Is that is that what that means? It, exactly, yes. So that's kind of building in, expecting people to drive rather than kind of nudging them the other way. I mean, I see the risk of going the other way, which is you don't build parking, and then people maybe don't have great options if you haven't put the bike lanes or the bu- you know the buses to that neighborhood. Where's the resistance coming? I mean, I, I feel like most neighborhoods and cities, as they've taken lanes out over recent years, it seems to go really well, right? Like most, we we've talked about this with a number of other people on the on the series that counterintuitively, I guess, if you take out lanes in a lot of cities or around cities things often move faster, right? It just kind of reduces people driving or it gives the other alternatives, a, you know, a kind of clearer space to run. Where's the resistance coming from? Do people not want bike lanes or in their neighborhood? Does it, do they find like it's dangerous or something?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think resistance comes from all over. And I, I think genuinely, not just in transportation, but across the whole question of moving to a zero carbon economy, I think Local opposition to changes is going to be one of the hardest things to overcome. I think that in North America in particular, whether it's opposition to a bike lane or opposition to a new solar power plant in your backyard, that's one of the biggest challenges I think we have. I think the technology in some ways we actually have mostly ready to go. I think the deployment is going to be really a challenge. So, yeah, I think where does the opposition to a bike lane or to changing parking minimums come from? I think people genuinely have an inclination to avoid change, right? I think there's some, there's some reasons to be sympathetic to that. If you move to a neighborhood, you probably chose it because of what it looked like. And so change can be difficult for people. But I think the reality is you have to make the case. And in your point saying, well, a lot of DOTs do it and the opposition's not there. Probably we should give them credit for being tactical and smart about where they're deploying them, making sure they're finding support for these things. The very famous example of the Prospect Park West bike lane in New York. If you can think of somewhere that's like bike friendly in the US that is more bike friendly than that part of Brooklyn, I would challenge you to tell me where it is. So that's a place with tons of people who are walking, very low car ownership. And that was hugely controversial. You know, went through multiple lawsuits. So there really has been opposition in many places. To your point, lots of success also. But I do think that it takes some political will. And what you see is that after they're in, people tend to love them and understand them. But I think there's a lot of hostility to what they might look like. Before people have seen them, maybe they're not that familiar. So I think there can be some sort of just latent change aversion that can be overcome when people actually see the results.
0: Yeah, I've seen that in my town. I mean, we have a main drag that's kind of like Main Street and they've experimented. We have one of the intersections along it that's got the bump outs now, the new corners that protect pedestrians. So people pulling out of spaces don't back into pedestrians and there's this sense from the town legislature which i'm on to my never-ending grief there's a sense from some people of well let's see how that one corner goes and i mean these have been used in cities and i mean and they want to wait and see it's like rather than just let's go build them all because it's better flow but yeah there's the change thing is is very hard obviously people kind of prefer i mean this is across the entire decarbonization agenda People like the supply side solutions, meaning we'll just make new technology. So let's let's talk about the kind of the electrification side of things. You know, what's important there on the on the agenda? And, let, you know, talk a little bit about micromobility too. That seems like where a lot of the electrification is happening. What can electrification do for, for these problems? Yeah,
1: I mean, electrification is really, to my mind, on the urban mobility section, it's really the core thing that has to happen. I think there are, I think some people who are worried about where money goes. You talked earlier about budgets and how we should be sure to be careful in how we allocate public dollars in terms of subsidies for cars. Is that really where we want to spend our money? And we could talk about that. But I think no matter what your starting point is, at the end of the day, when it comes to urban transportation, if we want to have a zero emissions urban transportation system, basically the technology is electrification. I think if you go back a few years, maybe people were talking about fuel cell cars. I think there's just less of that. Ultimately, everything has to be electrified. And we have the technology to do that For the kinds of trips that we're talking about when it comes to urban mobility. One of the things that people who work in urban mobility don't always appreciate, we've got it easy, right? If you're trying to decarbonize air travel or long distance shipping, you know, those things get more challenging. So we should be happy that there's actually technology off the shelf, which is electricity and electrification of all these modes of transportation that's actually ready to go. It's really the whole game. But to your point, we say electric vehicles sometimes, and I think people think about a car. We shouldn't just think about cars, right? I think one of the great things that's happening is the kind of enormous proliferation of micro mobility which i think of as including not just scooters that have been seen all over the place but this boom in e bikes that we're seeing that's been accelerated by the pandemic and people in north america really taking to pedal assist electric bikes and all kinds of things that weren't really that prominent even a few years ago i think that's that's hugely amazing i don't think of sort of different forms of electric mobility in opposition which sometimes how they get framed a little bit everything should be electric and really everything should be as light and light touch as possible because obviously Climate is what I'm focused on, but it's far from the only goal in transportation.
0: But, you know, but full electrification, uh, people don't, I think, really think through what the air would be like if you've ever walked behind a bus in a city, a normal bus. It's not pleasant, right? You're blown with this hot exhaust and, you know, walking behind an electric bus is is a different experience. A lot of people don't realize how fast the cost of, you know, these batteries have gone down so that. You know, China's putting in 10,000 electric buses every month or something like that for a few years now, right? At least three or four years. So it exists, right? You can electrify pretty much everything that comes in and out of a, a city. Looking at your bio again, you had a time back at Uber, right? You were the transportation policy director for Uber for three years. What did you learn about mobility in cities there and the role of you know the private sector? Because we've been talking mainly about what you know the cities do and public transport.
1: I learned a lot. As you imagine, it wasn't a boring time to be involved. I and mean, my job was trying to think about All the things that we're talking about in terms of sustainable transportation, you know, what is Uber's answer or position on those topics? And so that meant all over the world, a huge amount of conversation about whether or not Uber's on the right side of those issues. And I think to me, one of the most exciting things was the potential for private companies that operate fleets to be potential leaders on electrification. We've talked a lot about that electrification trend overall. And you're right, you know, cost declines have made things much more competitive. So I think there's an interesting role for something like Uber to be able to understand and take advantage of those cost changes more quickly. The vehicles that are being used on the Uber platform, obviously they're being driven more miles per year, which means the rewards for going electric tend to be better because you pay more out front, but you save it on gas cost. And also there's just an aggregation of that demand so people can make informed decisions and investments up front to get to electric. So I was hopeful that could happen. But actually to go back to your earlier question of sort of public and private and what are the roles one of the places that's moving quickest on electrification of things like Uber is in London. Uh, and one of the reasons that's happening is because they have a pretty strong financial disincentive for any polluting vehicle to enter the core of the city. You pay a pretty heavy charge if you're not basically electric at this point. But yeah, People with an Uber had to figure out how to do it, you know, and how to how to maybe charge riders a little bit to put a fund together to help drivers upgrade to electric more rapidly. So one of the things that I saw is there are examples out there. I think a lot of times the story you hear not totally wrongly, is that there's a battle between you know public regulation and private interests. But there are a few places, and I think London's low emission zone is what it's called, is a good example, where the right financial disincentive was put in place that fleets can take advantage of and make smart choices about where to put charging infrastructure, what kind of vehicles to procure, and move really quickly. And there, I think there's a chance for public and private to work together on stuff like electrification.
0: Well, it's interesting. I think to solve the biggest problems, you need these partnerships across private, civil, and and government sectors. And Often, even if people want to make the change, I see this in agriculture, transportation, they may need the financing because you can say an Uber driver, oh, they know over time it'll be cheaper to drive an electric, but they can't do it. So there's always that financing gap, right, that I think private sector and the banks can help with if they're kind of brought in to the system. We're coming to the end, but let's touch a little bit on data. I think we've tried to talk about that in every one of our, we get into the nerd phase of the conversation about the kind of data that you're collecting what do you think traffic data, what kind of data are we gathering now that's providing a lot more insight? And I know you've got a couple organizations, Open North Populous, that, that you've been involved with that are part of that, that ecosystem.
1: I think some of the interesting things we're seeing even during COVID is in terms of data and how it might affect things like public transportation, for instance. I think one of the examples that is happening now and may or may not be a durable trend is things like more on-demand transportation for places where what we think of as kind of fixed route buses that run on the schedule might not work. So is there a potential in the long run for lower density places or places that haven't been able to have any kind of transit before? Could they benefit from the fact that more and more people have a smartphone, that vehicles can easily convey real-time information, and you could sort of build systems that combine a bit of public transportation with some on-demand stuff and start to extend the benefits to suburban areas of services that previously they haven't had. So, you know, as part of my work with Open North, we work with some Smaller municipalities across Canada, many of which have taken to micro transit or on demand transit or whatever you'd like to call it, sort of more flexible transit service as one potential thing. And that has been talked about for 50 years, but you would in the old days, you would have been using a phone to call a dispatcher who would have talked to the driver. It was much more labor intensive. So I think there's a potential for some of that more nimble, flexible stuff to serve some areas that are outside the traditional realm of public transportation. And maybe those vehicles you know, are easy to make electric, they're easy to serve a wider population than just driving your own vehicle. So I think some of those places that haven't, if you live in Manhattan, I think technology might not radically alter your commute in the sense that probably you're walking to a subway that looks a bit like it did 120 years ago. But in some of those places where urban form hasn't allowed us to build alternatives, I think some of that data can maybe build some new types of services.
0: And when you combine all this, just for one last thought on kind of the, the sustainability agenda, we've talked about air quality and, and climate, what about like environmental justice and kind of bringing services to the underserved? How does, how do you feel like this is all coming together?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, transportation has a pretty bad legacy of everything from uh, the interstate highway program plowing its way through low-income minority neighborhoods all across the U.S. And those aren't just one-time effects that were felt then. Obviously, the fact that there's a heavy concentration of car and truck traffic going through those places is just really continuing to make the impacts felt in communities that really have felt the brunt of even our current system. I think it also happens to be that as climate becomes more of a problem, a lot of those neighborhoods are also gonna feel the brunt of uh, what climate change is gonna bring. So I think the opportunities to try and lead with, to your point, you know, things like electrification have a really immediate impact on air quality. It doesn't solve the whole problem necessarily, but it's a huge piece. So how do we make sure that we don't just end up spending the bulk of our time making sure people in, you know, Marin County can drive a Tesla, but that people in neighborhoods that have previously been really damaged by transportation systems get the early benefit. And that's not obvious because to your point today, a lot of these things cost more. So I think there's a lot to be done from the public side to try and steer some of the investment and benefit to frontline communities, to ensure that we're actually getting different kind of system that we're building when we're replacing what we used to have.
0: Makes sense. All right. Lightning round. Final question. We ask everybody, if you're looking out your window, you're driving through Montreal or walking through Montreal or Boston 20 years from now what what do you see what do you hope to see in a generation
1: yeah i'm hopeful that i am breathing dramatically cleaner air i think i'm hopeful that things are quieter too in terms of road traffic uh, i'm hopeful we're seeing not just the kind of vehicles we think of as cars today but a whole array of kind of lighter vehicles that we've been talking about maybe some of which are driving themselves some of which people have at the wheel so i'd love to see Lighter, safer, maybe slower, cleaner, quieter. I think all of that is really within the possibility of the technology we already have on hand. And hopefully we'll just get better over the next 20 years.
0: That's great. It's a great vision. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us. This has been fun. Nice talking to you. Thanks again to Andrew for coming on the show today. These new inspiring technologies like decarbonization are proving that a highly mobile, sustainable future is possible. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to rate and review us wherever you're listening. I'm Andrew Winston, and this has been City Talks by Ford.